Please bow your heads with me in prayer one more time as we ask God's blessing on the preaching of His Word. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we cannot make a single convert. We cannot open ears or open eyes or create new life in anyone. The preaching of your word is unsuccessful without the spirit of your word creating faith. So, Lord, speak your word today, even now. Make it clear. You have said in your word, and we confess that we do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from your mouth. You've said that the grass withers and the flower fades. Surely the peoples are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but your word stands forever. So we pray, Lord Christ, would you speak your word now? Your servants are listening. Fill us with your spirit to hear. May we prove by our hearing of your word, that we are your sheep. For Jesus' sake, amen. We live in a day when many truths of Christianity are considered hate speech. Now, some Christians seem surprised by this cultural hostility to the Christian faith. But if you'll turn with me to John 10 in your Bibles, we'll see that it has actually always been this way. Even when it was Christ himself who was preaching that truth. Unbelief criminalizes even the comforts of Christ. That's the dynamic that we're going to observe here in John 10. Unbelief criminalizes even the comforts of Christ. And here in John 10, verses 22 to 42, we're going to see seven comforts of Christ that unbelief refuses to enjoy to its own detriment and tragedy. And yet even though unbelief remains impervious to the facts of Jesus' life, his miracles, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of God, his comforts remain solid for all those who trust in him. And remarkably, Jesus continues to offer these comforts to those who are still stuck in their own unbelief. And if that's you, then I would pray today might be the day that you not only lose your hostility to Christ and to his truths, that you start hoping in his comforts yourself. We'll begin by reading John 10, 22 to 26. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you. And you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe, because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear 
my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. It's wintertime at the Feast of Dedication, which has celebrated the anniversary of temporary Jewish freedom under Judas Maccabeus and his revolt over a century prior. Jesus is walking around Solomon's porch outside the temple, making himself available for biblical and spiritual conversation about the gospel. And the Jews surround him. They're circling around him like a pack of wolves. How long will you take our breath away? How long will you make us wait with bated breath? That's the idea of their wording. If you're the Christ, tell us straight up. But man, if you have been reading John 10 regularly up to this point, that question kind of puts a grin on your face. Like, really? Tell us plainly if you're the Christ. After all of this, you can't be serious. Is that really what you're going to ask Jesus? Are you really being genuine? After everything Jesus has done to prove his identity as the Christ. Let's see, Jesus healed the paralytic at the pool. He fed the 5,000. He walked on water. He taught that he would distribute the Holy Spirit. He claimed authority to forgive sins. He called himself the light of the world. He claimed he lived before Abraham, before Abraham was, I am. And most recently, he has just healed a man born blind. So as readers of John's gospel, it's kind of hard for us to think how Jesus could have been any more clear. And yet unbelievers today are still asking the same question of verse 24. Unbelief has always remained impervious to gospel facts. Nevertheless, and here's our first comfort, here's our first comfort, Jesus verifies himself clearly. Jesus verifies himself clearly in verses 25 and 26. I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. These bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. He's shown us who he is. He's shown us. He's told us. He's proven it to us. He called God his Father in chapter 5, verse 18. He's claimed to pre-exist Abraham in chapter 8, and he's backed up all those words with his miraculous healings. This is a great comfort. He verifies himself. He's already done it. He verifies his identity for us by doing things only God could do. Now, if you're a non-Christian here among us, you have come to the right place to evaluate the claims of Jesus. We're glad you're here. But listen to how he reasons with you here in your unbelief. Jesus has already told and shown you all you need to know about him to believe in him. He's done that in Scripture. Have you read it? Read the Gospel of John all the way through. Watch what Jesus does. Listen to what he says. Jesus' word here in verse 25 still speaks to the unbelieving mind today. He's already given you proof that you need. 
And he's documented it for you in Holy Scripture. And yet the human heart is predisposed to unbelief about the things of Christ. Many people read the Bible only to confirm their skepticism. But if you read the Bible and just assume, well, that couldn't have happened because, of course, it's outside of the experience of my life and times. Well, then you're preventing yourself from believing in the very proofs that Jesus gave you precisely to help you out of your unbelief. How else would he prove his identity than by doing extraordinary things? Of course they're extraordinary. They're out of the ordinary. That's why he did them. So for you to reject those things because they're out of the ordinary is contrary to their whole purpose in helping you believe. The old Anglican J.C. Ryle said, Nothing is more common with hardened and wicked men than to allege a want of evidence and to pretend willingness to believe if only more evidence were supplied. He's right. Very common. Oh, why didn't he just tell us? Why didn't he just do something to prove? <laughs> Have you read John 1 through 10? He did. He did. It's a common way of misinterpreting Jesus in his own day, and it's a common way of misreading the Gospels today. An anti-miraculous reading of the Bible is destined to misunderstand Jesus because Jesus himself uses his miracles as arguments to confirm his claims about his divinity. You see what he's doing? It's like when he healed the paralytic in Mark 2. He had just forgiven the guy's sins. He said, your sins are forgiven you. And of course, the Jews around him were irate. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You're arrogating to yourself an authority that people don't have. And Jesus says, well, what's easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say to the paralytic, rise and take up your bed and walk? But in order that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, so that you might know, I'm going to do something. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. So listen to the logic there. It's the same as the logic here. Jesus does the verifiable thing, the thing you can see, the visible thing, the healing, so you can verify that he has power to do the invisible thing that you can't see, forgive your sins. That's why he did that stuff. You see here then how you can't deny Jesus' miracles and believe in who Jesus said he was? Again, J.C. Ryle said over 100 years ago during the rise of German higher criticism of the Bible, we should observe how our Lord always and confidently appeals to the evidence of his miracles. Those who try to depreciate and sneer at miracles seem to forget how often they are brought forward by Jesus himself as good witnesses to his identity. This, in fact, is their great object and purpose. And Herman Ritterboss said in the 1990s, Jesus now lays the entire weight of his having been sent and his oneness with the Father on his works. He lays his whole 
integrity of his whole ministry on his works. If I didn't, believe. If I didn't, don't. It's as if over against people who prove to be deaf to his words, Ritterboss goes on, Jesus here makes a final appeal to the undeniable character of many of his good deeds. Okay, you're not going to hear what I say? Well, at least look at what I do. He uses his miracles as evidence of his identity. Jesus does that. So if you don't do that, or if you use his miracles and your unbelief in them as a way to undermine Jesus' divine identity and his authority over your life, you're using miracles contrary to the way Jesus used them. And if you say you believe in Jesus but don't believe in the miracles, Jesus doesn't believe in you. Jesus doesn't believe that you believe in him if you don't believe in his miracles. But if... Jesus is God's son, then how does he explain people's unwillingness to trust him? Look there in verse 26. You don't believe because you are not of my sheep. See, unbelief is not a problem with who Jesus is. It's a problem with who the unbeliever is not. You are intrinsically unable to hear and respond to Jesus just like the man born blind was intrinsically unable to see Jesus for who he is until Jesus opened his eyes. And so, if you are an unbeliever, you do not view him as your shepherd or yourself as his sheep. And you are totally unable to make that true of yourself in your own power. Look at the logic of verse 26. You do not because you are not. It's not the other way around. It's not you are not because you do not. It's you do not because you are not. You do not refuse to believe because Jesus is deficient You refuse to believe because you are deficient. Your identity as a self-guided, self-reliant, self-righteous sinner is the problem. Jesus said the same kind of thing to the same kind of people in John 8, 47. You do not hear because you are not of God. You are not born from above. You are born from below. You don't have in you love for Jesus. You don't have in you love for the things from above because you are not from above. You are from below. See, your identity is not the solution or the excuse. It's the problem. So Jesus here, just to be clear, is preaching the doctrine of predestination. God must choose to give the gift of faith, and God only gives the gift of faith in Jesus to those whom he chooses. 
And he chose a long time ago, before the world began. And that's okay. He's allowed to do that. Don't get angry at God for that. Because his mercy is his to give. All the time in my house, I, I drink Coke Zero. I know it's probably not a great habit, but I drink it. I get in these 20-ounce bottles, and I, I usually don't drink a whole one at the same time. And so I leave a little bit at the end, and almost invariably, one of my children, can I finish that? Can I finish that? Can I finish that? And then the other one, as soon as that one started the question, can I finish it? Can I finish it? Well, who do I pick? Right? It's not bad for me to give it to one of them and not give it to the other one. It's my Coke to give. Right? Who's paying the bills in this house anyway? Three-year-old. Yeah, that's the doctrine of election and predestination because I'm not paying the rent. God is. I'm not living in my world. I'm living in God's world. Furthermore, I have disobeyed everything that God has told me to do, and so have you. So has everyone. We are rebels against God's law and against his love. For me to act like, oh, God owes me, God owes us, God owes them, God owes... No, 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 no. God owes no one anything. We owe Him. And He is willing to forgive many of us our debt to Him. When He shouldn't or wouldn't have to, according to strict justice, forgive anyone's debt at all. That is our situation. That is God's prerogative to speak into with his selective mercy. Not based on any righteous deeds that we have done, but because he is merciful. So the father has given a flock of sheep to the son, and the son will shepherd that flock. The proof that a sheep belongs to the shepherd, is that the sheep hears and follows the shepherd's voice. Just like we talked about a few weeks ago in the ancient Near East, still today, sheep know the sound of their shepherd's voice. They know the tune of the shepherd's song and call, and they don't follow anybody else but their shepherd. That's safety. But if you're not of the flock, you don't recognize or obey the shepherd's voice. The point of that statement, though, is not the final impossibility of faith for these particular Jews. Jesus still invites them. This is remarkable. This is more merciful than you or I would be with these Jews. Jesus still invites them, even though they're talking to them this way. Jesus still invites them, as late as verse 38, to know and understand that Jesus is in the Father and the Father is in him. The point here is to lay the blame for their unbelief at the right feet. Theirs, not his. Not God's. So election, predestination, is a true doctrine. And it assumes that all humanity, without exception, deserves God's righteous judgment for sinning against his law and for spurning his love. God decides to save a lot of people anyways, whom he chooses, and he rightly judges the rest. Which, when he could have rightly condemned us all. So these men in John 10 may or may not be part of the elect. We don't know. 
Yet their unbelief is their fault because they're the ones who sinned against God. God is gracious to save any sinners at all, yet Jesus will still invite even these men to know and understand Him. Even at the end of this conversation, which is a last glimmer of hope for them. The rest of this conversation is Jesus still inviting them into the comforts that he offers in his life, death, and resurrection as the great shepherd of his sheep. If only they will let go of their unbelief. And sinner, his offer still stands for you this morning. Why do you think you're here? Because God is gracious to you. He is slow to anger. He's merciful. And he wants you to hear the truth about his holiness and his wrath against your sin and guilt. And he wants to warn you about everlasting conscious torment in hell for all eternity if you don't repent. And yet he also wants to notify you he has cared for that in the person and work of Jesus Christ coming to live the sinless life you should have lived and died the death that you should have died for your sins before God. He raised Jesus from the dead on the third day for your justification, for your right standing with God. And if you turn from your self-righteous stubbornness against these truths and you turn from your sin and trust in Christ, He will reconcile you to Him. But friend, you have to stop criminalizing Jesus' comforts. You have to start believing them, trusting them, hoping in them, loving them, banking on them. Second comfort. Second comfort. Jesus loves us effectually. In John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. When Jesus says, I know them, he doesn't just mean he's aware of them. Like Jesus knows everything. He's the son of God. <laughs> he knows everyone. And he knew at the end of John 2, he knew what was in man. That's why he wasn't entrusting himself to just anybody who was saying that they believed in him. Rather, he knows his sheep in the sense that he loves them. And he sp- takes special notice and care of them. Our Adult ed class this morning was in Amos. In Amos 3.2, God had said to Israel, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Now, that doesn't initially sound very encouraging. But he's treating Israel like a special son. Whose kids in the neighborhood do I discipline? Not my neighbors. I discipline my kids. Yes, God knows Israel in a very special, covenanted way. My firstborn son, he called Israel. He was aware of all the nations. He would even judge them all. But Israel, he knew as a father, knew a son. He loved them enough to make a covenant with them, to save them from their sins, and to correct them when they went astray. And so it is here. Jesus says, I know them in the sense of I love them specially and I love them in a way that enables them to hear and recognize and respond to my voice when other people do not. So if you are of Jesus' flock, then you do recognize his voice. And that is the reason you recognize 
and follow his voice because you are of his flock. Whatever your doubts and wanderings, you keep coming back to this. Poor frustrated Christian, why in the world do you keep coming back here? Why do you think you keep coming back? Because you know this is the bread of life. I know you're frustrated. I know you're not perfect. I know your sin frustrates you. Sometimes scares you. You know who's not scared or frustrated by their sin? People who are not of Jesus' flock. It should be a comfort to you. You belong to Jesus, not because you gave yourself to him, but because the Father gave you to Jesus from before the world began. Romans 8, 29, those whom he foreknew, foreloved, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Those whom he foreknew. Who is that? It's not all people without exception. The Father, of course, knew from the beginning of time who everybody would be. He created them. It's rather those the Father chose to forelove into conformity to His Son, Jesus. Christian, that's you. And that, Christian, is your comfort. God took special notice of you and loved you before you were ever a glint in your Father's eye. And he loved you powerfully. He loved you so powerfully and effectively that he opened your ears to hear and recognize the gospel as the comfort that it really is when he may not have opened the ears of your brother or your sister or your mother or your father. He woke you up to God's holiness and to your sinfulness that offends God, your liability to God's judgment in hell for all eternity. Woke you up to his own identity as God's son and his mission to take on human flesh, to live the sinless life you should have lived, and to die the death you deserved, and to rise again. He even gave you a new heart to turn away from your sin and self-reliance so that you would trust in Jesus. Why do you think you trust him? It's not because you're just a great guy. Jesus knows you. He has known you. In the sense that he loves you into that truth and into the eternal destiny that awaits all those who trust him, which is conformity to his image for all eternity. And that leads us directly into our third comfort. Our third comfort, Jesus secures us eternally. He secures us eternally. Verse 28, I give them eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. This is a third comfort that unbelief refuses to believe. And often, that belief forgets to believe. Jesus secures us eternally when we trust him. I give them eternal life. I, the Son of God, authoritative, Eternal, the one who heard the voice from heaven on the holy mountain. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. I 
give them. I gift it to them. I earn it for them and I share it with them. Eternal life. And this eternal life is not just a never-ending duration of life. It is heaven begun now on earth by bringing us into fellowship with his eternal goodness by sending his word and spirit into us now. This is eternal life, Jesus will say in his high priestly prayer in John 17, that we might know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom God has sent. He knows us so that we might have the eternal life-giving satisfaction of knowing him. And that starts now. Now. And we never perish. Not that we never die physically, but that we never experience the eternal process of destruction and dying which is eternal conscious torment in hell. We, as those who believe in Jesus, don't experience that. We don't perish in that way. That is the destruction Jesus saves us from. Knowing God, loving Christ, being secure in Him now and for all eternity in heaven is what He saves us into. We are secure in His loving knowledge of us and we are stabilized by knowing Him. What's more, no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one. No one. Not a demon. Not a boss. Not a government. Not the world. Not the devil. Not hell itself. And not your own weakness and inconsistency as a Christian. Not even you. Not even your doubt. Not even your fear. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Christian, the reason you are secure in Christ is not because you keep your hold on him. It's because he keeps his hold on you. Look at the text. He is not in your hand. You are in his hand. And he knows it. And he knows you. And he will make sure that no one pries you away from him. So, beloved older saint, sick saint, listen to that. Look at that. Maybe you feel like death is coming for you a little earlier than you wanted it to come, a little faster. Maybe you fear the unknown of what it will be like to die. But Jesus knows you. Jesus loves you. And Jesus is holding you in his hand now and always. He will not leave you in the moment of your death. He will be faithful to you. Jesus' hands never get tired of holding you. You ever hold on to something like the rail in front of you on a roller coaster or a power tool? I got a chainsaw a couple years ago, and I was using that thing for a while. And, man, after a while, I was like, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's how it felt. Jesus' hands never feel like that. They never get tired or stiff from holding you. They're eternally strong. And you are eternally secure in them. He is faithful to keep hold of you. He is gentle to lead you. And he is strong and faithful to save you. 
all the way to the end. He will not let go of you as you cross the great river of death. He will hold you tightly all the way through it. I remember the first time I was ever, I just thought about this. First time I was ever on a, on a roller coaster, it was, a, it was an old wooden roller coaster at Cedar Point, the Gemini. Maybe some of you have heard of it, if you're old enough. And man, I was scared. I was scared to go down that roller coaster. And I was with my dad. It was one of those old ones. All it had was a lap bar. It didn't have the things coming over your... So it's like, man, this is a really high... This is a, it was probably as high as I'd ever been in my life as a kid. I was like nine. And my dad was sitting there right by... He had to coax me even to get on the thing. But he was right there as we sort of click, 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 click up the hill. I got scareder and scareder. And he put his arm around me. My dad put his arm around me. And he clutched me close to himself. And we went down together. I remember that. The sweet moment with my dad. But it helped me feel safe. Now, that's different. Like, my dad really, it didn't matter if my dad had his arm around me if that thing went off the track. Like, <laughs> the analogy fails at some point, right? But it is similar. Jesus will hold you, dear saint, all the way through death. And when you open your eyes in glory, millions of saints will be welcoming you and saying to you, See, we told you he was faithful. He was faithful to us. See, he was faithful to you too, wasn't he? Come on in here. That's what it's going to be like. Fourth. More comfort still, more comfort still. Comfort for God the Father holds us invincibly. Verse 29, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So the all-powerful God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, gave the sheep to Jesus. The Father is the greatest conceivable being in reality. He is almighty, sovereign, strong, invincible to save. And yet, when the Father gave the sheep to Jesus, the Father did not simply let go of the sheep himself. He did not say, okay, here you go, son. They're all yours now. That's not the motion. He gave the sheep to Jesus as his son and our shepherd without letting go of us himself as our father. So now we sheep are held firm by two omnipotent hands. We walk between God the Son holding our hand on one side and God the Father holding our hand on the other side. Christian, you could not be more secure in your salvation. Our three-year-old likes to walk between my wife and me, holding both hands so we can swing him up off his feet. This is usually happening in a parking lot somewhere. When we're doing that, it doesn't matter if his hands slip. It doesn't matter if he doesn't have his grip on me. He can't really grip me. His hands are too small. His hands are in our hands. Our hands are bigger than his. We've got hold of him, even if he loses his grip on us, even if he doesn't have the ability to hold on. The last thing William is thinking about is us dropping him. 
It's the opposite. He is squealing with the greatest delight at the height of his greatest vulnerability if we were to drop him. His volume goes up as we go up, as he goes up. But the possibility of us dropping him does not even occur to his childlike trust in us. Christians from all ages past have sung about our safety and the gracious grip of the Almighty God and His Son, Jesus Christ, hidden in the hollow of His blessed hand. We should sing this tonight. Hidden in the hollow of His blessed hand. Never foe can follow, never traitor stand. Not a surge of worry, not a shade of care. Not a blast of hurry touched the Spirit there. Every joy or trial falleth from above, traced upon our dial by the Son of love. We may trust Him fully, all for us to do. They who trust Him wholly find Him wholly true. Stayed upon Jehovah, hearts are fully blessed, finding, as He promised, perfect peace and rest. That's yours. Fifth comfort. Jesus and God the Father agree on saving us wholeheartedly. (laughs) Jesus and God the Father agree on saving us wholeheartedly. I and the Father are one. Now, in our context, what that means is that Jesus and the Father are united in their purpose and resolve to hold us firm against any potential challenger or danger. Jesus and the Father are one in our salvation. There is zero disagreement, zero reticence, zero hesitation, zero argument between the Father and the Son over whether to save the sheep or not. They're in lockstep, enthusiastic agreement to save to the uttermost all those who come to Jesus as sheep who recognize the voice of their shepherd. Jesus did not have to convince the Father to save us. It was the Father's idea in the first place. It was His plan all along. And the Father did not have to twist the Son's arm to become one flesh, one with our flesh forever in His incarnation, death, and resurrection. When Christ came into the world, listen to what He said, according to Hebrews. He said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offering and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And the Hebrew of that same verse reads, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within My heart. Jesus is the most obedient son there has ever been. And he was obedient to the death for you at his father's command to lay down his life to save your sorry, sinful soul. But the statement itself is even stronger and more general, isn't it? I and the Father are one, period, full stop, without qualification. I and the Father are one, Jesus says, not only in the salvation of the sheep, they are one in saving purpose, that is true, but they are one in saving purpose because they are one in divine essence. Distinct in personhood, 
They are one in glory, one in divinity, one in holiness, honor, power, and worship. That's why we recited the Ligonier Statement on Christology this morning. That's why we've been singing Trinitarian hymns this morning. I and the Father are one. And he means that in as full a sense as he can possibly mean that sentence of himself. There is an eye of the Son, and there is the person of the Father, distinct from one another, yet one with and in each other. And it is that unity, the unity of divine omnipotence and love, that is the ground of their unity in deciding to save you and accomplishing your salvation for you against all of your demerit, over against it. I and the Father are one. That, little flock, is why you will be saved to the uttermost. Not ultimately because you agreed to be saved, but because God the Father and God the Son agreed together to save you and to make you want the salvation that they were offering you. You cannot be more secure in the comfort of your salvation. Jesus knows you in saving love. Jesus holds you in his hand. The Father holds you in his hand. The Father and Son are one in holding you because they are one in divine essence and being as distinct persons in the Trinity. And yet, as glorious and comforting as these truths are, unbelief takes offense at what Jesus offers as comfort. This is tragic. And it is still tragic today because it still happens today. Verses 31 to 33, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. (laughs) Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. See, they think they're the biblical ones. Hey, we know our Torah We know the Bible. We know our Old Testament better than you. We know better than to believe somebody like you. We're the real godly people. They think they're the conservatives holding down the fort against the liberal Jesus. They're applying Leviticus 24, 16. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. Leviticus 24, 16. They got chapter and verse on them. In their own minds, they are only doing what is reasonable based on what they know. And because they see Jesus only as a man and nothing more, for him to claim oneness with God is to denigrate God himself. That's blasphemy. To talk in a degrading or disparaging way about God. And surely they think it disparages and demeans God for a carpenter to call himself one with the Almighty. I mean, this guy is from Nazareth, man. I mean, it looks like an open and shut capital case. Stone them on the spot. And yet, look back over John 1 through 10. Are they right? Friend, do you see here how unbelief is taking offense at everything Jesus is offering as comfort? The truth he had taught of himself, they had considered a lie. The works that proved his divinity, they'd been chalking up to the demonic. 
He was calling his, his sheep clearly, but it was they who were unable to recognize his voice and unwilling to follow him. They were deaf to him. He was offering the comfort of an omnipotent salvation from sin, death, and hell, and yet all he meant for their comfort, they took as a reason for offense. Surely this man is not God in the flesh. Surely he is not right and we are all wrong. I mean, we're the experts, not him. He didn't have an education. Where did he go to seminary? Who trained him? It is this not exactly how unbelief talks still today about Jesus. I don't have to listen to that guy anymore. People were dumb to listen to him for this long. That's what unbelief says. He can't possibly be God. Jesus simply made himself out to be something he wasn't. Or the apostles must have made Jesus out to be something he wasn't. Or his miracles were sleight of hand or mass delusion. My friend, the church is here to tell you not to take offense at all that Jesus offers you for your comfort and salvation. It is all true, even if you don't believe it, including the next comfort. Comfort number six, Jesus fits with Scripture flawlessly. He fits with Scripture flawlessly. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken, Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? See, they had accused Jesus of blasphemy, degrading, demeaning God's name by claiming that he himself was one with God. They were telling him he had committed a capital offense and Leviticus 24 condemned him. But Jesus answered that charge with a quote from Psalm 82.6. That psalm is a rebuke either of Israel's judges or the kings of the earth because they were not executing justice as God had commissioned them to do. God has taken his place in the divine council, in the midst of the gods. He holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and fatherless. And then in verse 5, I said, you are gods, son of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Jesus' point in quoting that one verse is simply to say that Scripture itself, God himself, calls human leaders gods. In Scripture. I, God says to these unjust judges, I said to you, you are gods. You are like gods. You have the authority of a God to exercise judgment and administer justice like me. God himself calls people gods. Small g. And that's in the same scripture the Jews were quoting to condemn Jesus for calling himself the Son of God. So, Jesus' argument goes, I am not being unbiblical to call myself the Son of God when the Bible itself, God himself, calls people gods with a little g. It's in there. Psalm 82. Far from being unbiblical, since Jesus is actually the eternal Son of God whom the Father consecrated as the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. He's the one God sent into the world from eternity to become the all-sufficient Savior for all sinners who will turn from their sins and trust in Christ as as God's appointed sacrifice. 
to satisfy his own wrath and reconcile us to himself. Jesus does not contradict or disobey the Old Testament scriptures by calling himself God or the Son of God. The Old Testament uses the little g gods, God himself does that, with people who are sinners in places of authority. So why not Jesus? He fits right in with these Old Testament scriptures flawlessly, even in how he talks about himself, and that is a comfort too. He fits and fulfills everything that was foretold. But in the very way Jesus shows how he fits with Scripture, he gives us a bonus comfort about the reliability and usefulness and truthfulness of Scripture. So this is like comfort 6.A or 6.1 if you're a really anxious note taker. Look at what Jesus does here. And Scripture cannot be broken. He quotes Psalm 82.6. I mean, how many of you even knew Psalm 82.6 was in the Bible? Some of you, are, you're looking, I'm looking at you, and some of you are like, wait a minute, you're like, like this, and you're Psalm 82.6. He called them gods? No way, that's not it. It is in there. Yeah. Jesus quotes it. And then he says, and Scripture, including this one, cannot be broken. So look at what Jesus did there. He quotes Psalm 82.6, this obscure, potentially controversial verse, all by its lonesome self, and expects that one little verse to settle this argument with biblical experts about his own divinity, no less. B.B. Warfield of Old Princeton, before it went liberal, noticed this in his book on inspiration and inerrancy, and he said this, in the Savior's view... The indefectible authority of Scripture. You cannot defect from it. The indefectible authority of Scripture attaches to the very form of expression of its most casual clauses. Even the way Scripture puts stuff in the most seemingly throwaway verses has indefectible authority to confirm Jesus' identity, no less. In the same book, Warfield footnotes another guy as saying of this, quote, an isolated expression, Psalm 82.6, I said you were gods, an isolated expression of precisely the book most subjective in its character in the whole canon, the Psalms. They're the most emotional writings in the whole Bible. They're prayers, they're songs. That, is made use of and applied as meeting the case and confirming Jesus' identity. And of the phrase Jesus used here to introduce the quote, it is written, Warfield says, what is written in this document, the Old Testament, admits of so little questioning that its authoritativeness requires no asserting. Jesus, doesn't, Jesus isn't like, hey, I don't, you know, I need to stop here and kind of argue for the authority of Scripture. No, it is, it is written. Boom. And then after quoting such an obscure, isolated text, Jesus reminds them, Scripture cannot be broken, as if to say, I hang my Christological hat in this argument 
with biblical trivia experts on Psalm 82.6, and I can drop the mic because what I am quoting is authoritative scripture. Now, it is the understatement of the age, then, to conclude from Jesus' quote in Psalm 82.6 that Jesus believes in the Old Testament. <laughs> Jesus believes in the Old Testament? Yeah. You better believe it. He trusts it, he obeys it, he ascribes to it full divine authority as the inerrant God-breathed word, so much so that Jesus does not argue for the authority of the Old Testament. He argues from it. To affirm his own divinity and identity from a single line of a single song that you probably didn't even know was in there. Friend, that is a comfort to you. You know what that means? That means you should read your Old Testament in your quiet time and trust Jesus to bring meaning out of it for you by the Holy Spirit as he fills your heart and mind as you read it. Jesus completely trusts the Old Testament. You can completely trust the Old Testament. He ascribes divine authority to it, so you can ascribe divine authority to it. I don't care what Old Testament authority in some seminary somewhere says otherwise because he thinks he's an expert in textual criticism. This is why we preach through whole books of the Old Testament like Malachi and Samuel. It's why you can, can and should read the Old Testament in your own devotional times at home. And it is why we should and will never unhitch from the Old Testament because Jesus hitches himself to the Old Testament and therefore to unhitch from the Old Testament is to unhitch from Jesus. You cannot unhitch from the Old Testament without unhitching yourself from Jesus. Comfort seven. Comfort seven, perfect number, divine number. Seventh one, Jesus proves himself persuasively. And really here we're coming right back to where we began. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe in me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Here again, Jesus makes the integrity of his whole ministry, of his whole identity, hinge on his own miracles. Jesus himself is certain of who he is and of what he has done and how his works relate to his teaching about who he is and where he's from. He has more than proven himself. So if they are offended by the things he says about himself, like I and the Father are one, then at least they have the option of going back and reconsidering all the miracles that he did and say, well, wait a minute. Did he prove it? Did he back it up? They were all good works, life-giving, life-restoring, healing, providing, and they were special, miraculous, inexplicable, unless he really is God in the flesh. So, Christian, this is, again, a great comfort to you. Jesus did not simply make empty claims about himself. He did miraculous things to show that he is God. This is how Peter preached, the Jesus, preached Jesus in the, in the Gospel of Acts, or in the, in the book of Acts, in chapter 10, verse 37 in Acts, it says, beginning with Jesus' publicly known miracles, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for 
Why did he do those things? How was he able to do them? For God was with him, and we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and all Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Even his resurrection is one of these works. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins in his name. Why should you believe that you get forgiveness of sins in his name? Because of what he did. Just like Jesus said in the healing of the paralytic in Mark 2. For Peter, just as for Jesus, the miracles are the way Jesus distinguished himself as divine. And just because you haven't seen one doesn't mean that he didn't do a million of them. But unbeliever, there's comfort here for you too. As unbelieving as you have been, as much offense as you have taken at what Jesus offers you as comfort, he is still offering it to you here from Scripture in John 10, 38. If I do the works of my Father, even though you do not believe me, my words, believe the works that you may know and understand. Hey, hey, I still want you to know. I still want you to understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. If you're hearing that invitation right now, that's for you. You want to know? You want to understand? Read the Gospels. Believe them. Jesus wants you still to know and understand that he is the one the Father sent to save you from the power and penalty of your sins. He wants you to have the eternal life of knowing the true God and Jesus Christ whom his Father has sent. Don't take offense at that. Yeah, Jesus is special. Jesus is special, not you. Not me. Jesus is special. His works proved it. His tomb is empty. Trust him. Take him at his word. He rose from the dead. He fulfills the promises of the Old Testament. And he can reconcile you to the God that you offended, that you are scared of. So instead of relating to you as a judge, that God will relate to you as a father. Yet again, verse 39, unbelief takes offense at what Jesus offers as comfort. They sought to arrest him. Again, J.C. Ryle, nothing seems to harden the heart and take away the reasoning faculty so completely as obstinate resistance to plain evidence. <laughs> he said that over 100 years ago. He could have said that yesterday. Still, the episode ends as it began on a note of divine sovereignty. Look there at how John puts it. But he escaped from their hands. Now, isn't that an interesting way to end the whole thing? From their hands. That's the same phrase that Jesus used of his sheep in verse 28. No one can snatch them from my hand. And again in verse 29, no one can snatch them from the Father's hand. And yet here, Jesus escapes from their hand. <laughs> John's like giggling at that. Just like, let's do it. Joke's on you guys. And John's like, all of my readers who believe in Jesus, you guys are secure. And all of you who are trying to catch Jesus and prove him wrong, he escapes from your hand. But everybody who's in his hand, totally safe. Whose hand do you want to be in? And by this point, John's gospel 
Jesus has escaped their clutches so often that John doesn't even have to add because his hour had not yet come. You already know that. That's why. Because he said it to you like five times up to now. The emphasis of the whole conversation has been on God's sovereignty and the salvation of Jesus' sheep. And the conversation ends fittingly with an emphasis on God's sovereignty in the timing of Jesus' death for his sheep. No one will be able to arrest Jesus until his hour, God's hour for him, arrives. Jesus' whole life and ministry, including this conversation with the Jews, is in the Father's hand, and no one can snatch Jesus until Jesus gives himself up in the hour his Father had appointed for him. Friends, even that is a comfort. Maybe you're in a situation or even in a season when you feel something or someone has snatched you or is getting ready to. Christian, it is not what it appears. Even Jesus' death on the cross was not an instance of anyone snatching him from the Father. No one took Jesus' life from him. He laid it down of his own accord, which was a charge he had received from his Father. But Christian, this should actually be such a comfort to you that you feel free to lay your life down for other people here. You see? If God is this sovereign to save you, if God is this sovereign over the when and how of Jesus' death for you, when he lays down his life for you, then you can be so secure in your salvation that you can lay down your life for others and not fear what it's going to cost you or how it's going to feel or how Jesus will make it up to you. After all, no one can snatch you from the Father's hand or from the Son's. So you can lay your life down just as Jesus did because you know that you will take up your life again by the power and grace of Jesus, by the same power that Jesus took up his life again by the power of his resurrection. Yet although unbelief criminalizes what Jesus intends for our comfort, faith receives all these comforts and trusts Jesus gladly. And here's where we close in verses 40 to 42. Faith trusts Jesus gladly. He went away Again, across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained, and many came to him, and they said, John did no sign. The Baptist did no sign, no miracle. But everything John said about this man was true, and many believed on him there. Jesus actually has to leave Jerusalem to find faith in him as the Messiah. And this time, unlike others in John, it looks like it's the real deal. These people remember that the Baptist had never worked a single miracle, yet Jesus was everything John said he would be. He is the bridegroom come for his bride. He is above all things because he came from above. He has the spirit without measure, and so he interprets God's scripture with divine authority. He is bearing witness to what he has seen and heard in heaven, yet no one receives his testimony on earth, just like John said. And so it is here beyond the Jordan that many believed in him. John the Baptist already decreased without seeing God do any miracles through him. And yet here, years after he had faded from the public scene, Many people are believing everything John the Baptist said about Jesus, and so now Jesus increased, just like John the Baptist said he must. See, when we believe in Jesus, we often aspire to do great things for his namesake. We want to see great revival, great repentance, great numbers, great buildings, great budgets, great movements, great growth. Yet J.C. Ryle said this, if only our preaching is sealed as the true witness of Christ, 
through the experience of those who believe and are saved, then we shall have done miracles enough. If only your testimony is sealed in the experience of other people, you will have done enough miracles. And that is also a great comfort. Of course, stubborn unbelief is sure to take all these comforts and criminalize them. It's no surprise, though. It will only result in condemnation for those who reject Christ. But for those of you who take Jesus at his word, for those of you who recognize the good shepherd's voice and all of these comforts, take heart. Take heart. You believe because you are his sheep. You follow his voice because he is your shepherd. He knows you, Christian. He gives you eternal life. The Father and the Son are in wholehearted agreement to save you. And nothing, nothing can ever change that. Because you, Christian, are in good hands. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for the comforts you give us in Christ. May we trust them wholly. May we find Jesus and you as our Father, holy true. For Jesus' glory in our hearts and in this church we pray. Amen.